Welcome to Verify in Fields, the Millwork Podcast. Your host, Jacob Edmond, CEO of Duckworks, will be interviewing experts in the industry to bring you insights and knowledge about the latest trends, techniques, and challenges in millwork. Whether you're a seasoned professional or just starting out, this podcast is for you. So sit back, relax, and join us as we explore the world of millwork. Here's Jacob. Hey, everybody. Today, we have a real special guest, Radko Tubik, and you'll have to correct me if I... Am I saying that right? Am I pronouncing your name correctly? Yeah, I mean, I'm used to it. It's not for two bits in my language, but I'm used to it. Okay. Yeah. I'm used okay. to it. Don't worry about it. Thank you. Awesome. Um, but uh, Racco is, is a, today, contract millwork engineer. He helps companies with their millwork engineering, specifically using microvolume software. Um, and he comes from a very unique background, though, being um, not born in the U.S. and coming into the U.S. millwork industry. So I really want to, um, him to share a little bit about, you know, I think he has a unique perspective of our industry. Um, and, uh, we have a similar background, both, you know, working in this industry and engineering and microvolume engineering. So I'm excited to have a conversation today. Thanks for, uh, joining today, Reco. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Jacob, for having me here. And it's, it's an honor to be a part of this podcast and, and conversation, have this conversation with you. Thank you. Awesome. Yeah, uh, likewise. So uh, to get started, I think, you know, if you could share a little bit about just your unique background being born in Bosnia and and coming from uh, Bosnia through Serbia to the U.S. Um, and then how you got into millwork altogether in the U.S. Yeah, okay. So I'm third generation woodworker. Um, as you said, I'm born and raised in Bosnia and really, really small town in Bosnia. Um, so I kind of, I mean, this journey started by itself. I literally grew up in the shop playing with the dust and, you know, thinking of all these things that I can make for myself to play around and, you know, swords and I don't know, shields and I don't know, whatever, a lot of stuff. And then, um, growing to it, um, started to like it more and more, the more I was into it, the more I liked it, the, you know, the things that you build with your hands and especially back in, in Boston, where I'm coming from, uh, we have a really small shop. So literally, it was more hands-on, that machines that's going to help you. So that's literally what brought me into this. Um, then later on, during the high school, my father kind of was pushing me to go into IT because he really saw the future into it. And he's like, you should go there. It's, you know, it'll be better for you. So, but... I was always coming back to woodworking. And then there comes the fourth year in high school. Everyone is talking who is going to go to college, which college, and where are they going to go. And uh, there comes one of my friends, and he's like, hey, I see you don't enjoy this, you know, industry, IT, and everything. You know that there is a college in Belgrade, you know, Faculty of Forestry, and they have this major, you know, technology management and design of furniture and wood products. He's like, I think you would like that. So that was like music to my ears. I went home, researched everything for the next couple of days, sat down to my father. I was like, listen, I found this college that I'm really excited about. I want to try it out. And he's like, yeah, that's what you got to know. Yeah, I, I will support you 100%. So that's what happened next. Went to the college uh, and really, really enjoyed it. I mean, my grades and everything wasn't the best during the high school and, you know, middle school and everything. 
But then when I came to college, I, I was recognized for one of the best, you know, in the class. And, you know, where other colleagues will come to me, ask me questions. Hey, how you resolve this issue and how you put together this cabinet or how you. And I just fell in love with it. That, that was literally the only thing I was talking about during that college. Whenever I, when I go back home, you know, I'll talk all about what I will talk. It's, it was all about college. What I learned new, you know, about kill drawing the wood or cutting the veneer and stuff like that. So, so yeah, I enjoyed there. And then, uh, some circumstances happened and then kind of my, one of my colleagues kind of you know, convinced me that I should come to him with him to the United States to visit. You know, it was that program like work and travel and stuff like that. So that's how I came here. Um, I liked it. I worked, I didn't work in industry for a first year, year and a half, I would say. And then I started looking, I, I, I just get, I was like, you know what? I need to go back in the industry. I need to go back in woodworking. That's what I love to do. That's, I'm really enjoying into that. So I, I really have to go back to that. So then I started looking for the companies. And the funny thing is I was applying for all carpentry jobs <laughs> because when you translate woodworking from my language to English, mm -hmm. it says carpentry. So that was what I was applying for. And people will call me in interviews and I'll go and talk and they want me to install this trim and stuff. I was like, that's not what I'm looking for. <laughs> and then until down the road, I realized actually that you guys call it here woodworking or craftsman. So that's what I'm looking for. So there comes my first, you know, company and experience in the United States with woodworking. I found Linear. Um, that was another funny thing that happened because I sent two emails with my resume and everything explaining my background and I went to college and all that. So for, sent first email, no one responded anything. After a couple of days, I sent another email. Again, no one responded anything. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to just sit in my car, drive to the shop and talk with those guys. So that's what I did. Sat down in the car, drove back there, asked for that guy who was uh, I was sending the emails to. And I was like, hey, man, I really want to work here. You know, I sent you emails. If you can look my, you know, resume and CV and let me know what you think. I really, really want to, I just need opportunity, you know, and then you, you'll decide if I worked it or not. So talking with him, he was the GM and then talking with the owner of the company. They like me. They like my passion and everything. They're like, yeah, of course we can, you know, we're going to give you opportunity, but you got to start from scratch. They didn't care about my, you know, past experience and anything. So that's what happened. I started from scratch as a helper and then, uh, Grew up in that company after like a year and a half, two years max. I was um, moved to the office. I was production manager helping the owner and the GM, you know, streamline the things and organize them and stuff like that. Um, and then kind of um, even back, so, so I'll, I'll, journey kind of leads it to self, you know. Back, even back then, uh, we struggled with backlog in the engineering. Mm -hmm. So even back then I was trying to resolve that issue with kind of building a team back where I'm coming from, because I was in touch with my professor and kind of we were talking and he suggested this idea. He's like, why you don't have a couple of people here in Serbia 
build a team, you can train them, you can explain them all the standards and everything, and then they can start working for you guys and kind of do engineering for you. But the owner wasn't that open for that. Uh, I don't know. Back then, uh, maybe he's open now, I don't know. But back then, he wasn't open for any outsourcing. He wanted people in the house. So that idea kind of gets shut down. And then during that, I mean, I learned so much in there. I mean, they, they are high-end residential luxury company. They do green match, matching. Like I never saw other company do stuff like they do. Maybe they are existing, but I didn't come across them. So they do some amazing stuff. So I learned a ton of there. Uh, then I felt that kind of that it was time for me to move on. Because so, even on, go ahead. while you were there, though, you, you said that they had you kind of start from scratch. Yes. But you worked your way, I assume, <clears throat> while you were there into engineering. And, and did you learn microvolume while you were there? Okay. Thank you. Yeah, good question. So, yes, I, I, I was not brought to engineering necessarily. I was brought more into kind of production, you know, more to be in charge of the shop. I mean, the whole production, you know, to make sure that all ducks are in a row and the schedule is there, that we're meeting the schedule, deadlines and stuff like that. So, but that's why I kind of was introduced to Microvelo. When I went in the office, I kind of started more um, asking questions about engineering because even the, during the college, my my strongest skill was engineering i mean i i thought that i mean that i was the best in the class in you know engineering and drafting and design and you know type of classes like that so as soon as they moved me to the office the most interested department i was in it was engineering i was always you know talking with those guys what program do you use how do you use it so that that's exactly where i was introduced to microvellum and i was blown away when I saw what that, you know, software can do and that it's especially that it's a addition to AutoCAD, that's what I love the most. And then I kind of started learning myself. I, I was, because my main role wasn't, again, engineering or drafting any, any type of that. But I, I had a license. So I was kind of every, every time I had free time, I'll be researching about my curriculum, you know, watching the videos, even, even at home. You know, I watched almost every video on YouTube they had or every video on the website they have. I went through Knowledge Network every time I had a question and anything. You know, try to pick up much information as I, I can. And uh, that's actually where I came across your profile because you did something amazing back with USA Millwork where you kind of connected all those four companies under one umbrella. And I was, man, how he, how he was able to you know, achieve that. I was literally amazed by that. So, I mean, that's about it. And then later on, I kind of had feeling that it was time to move on because I had, you know, a couple of disagreements with the owner in the direction where we should go. And uh, I kind of felt that, you know, it's it's time. I felt it's time. I'm not, you know, gaining any new knowledge. I kind of I thought that I picked up everything I could there. So then I would move to Crown Custom Work. So that was a whole another ball game because they do uh, commercial and it's, you know, high-end commercial company. Um, and I moved there to be mainly an engineer because I wanted to learn my Corella more. And the best way I thought to learn that program is to use it all the time. So I want to find a role to use it 
constantly full time to use only microalum. So that's what happened. And then back then I was introduced uh, engineering. They had a really, really good learning, you know, like a training videos that helped me elevate my knowledge in microalum. They were really, really detailed and good. Uh, and then, um, yeah, back then, I thought outsourcing, it's not a big thing in the United States because the previous owner kind of shut that idea down. Mm-hmm. And then I came to Kremlin and then all the drawings and drafting those guys outsourced. So they have no one in the house drafting any project. They have one guy who is reviewing those drawings and kind of making sure they match their standards and everything and kind of doing the red lines when they come back. But all they do, it's outsource. So that's where the idea came to, you know, me starting in the future to freelance and to open my own kind of thing. And yeah, that's what happened. After a couple of months, eight months, I was eight months in, with the crown. And at the end, um, it was time to move on again. I, I was, and I thought that freelancing would be the best thing for me to do. And I love it. So awesome. awesome. So now you went from that to, to where you are today, right? Which is, yes. uh, you open yeah. your, you went out on your own. Uh, so you do freelancer contract. Uh, drafting and engineering, all in microvome or predominantly in microvome? Uh, all microvome. All microvome. Okay. Just microvome. Um, and so what was that transition like? Because obviously you, you were exposed at Crown to, hey, this is a thing and we're doing it a lot here. Um, and as you mentioned, um, you know, it is, uh, there's a lot of companies that are doing it. There's a lot that are totally opposed to it and can't see it as a, an option, right? Um, that and for good reason, because there's, uh, it is hard to hard. do. And there's a lot of, uh, providers out there that, you know, maybe are doing it or offering shop drawings, but they're not really familiar with millwork. And so, uh, you though, you, coming from having hands-on experience in a shop, uh, how, how have you been able to transition into, you know, helping your clients now, uh, bridge that gap? Like, uh, what, is, what does that look like today that when you work with your clients? So the main reason why I was able to get clients here is exactly like you said, because I had hands-on experience here in the United States. So I was already a production manager in the United States company. I was already an engineer in the United States company. So people like that. And um, that's how I was, I was able to kind of make uh, good relationships with the clients and uh, kind of yeah, on the start, on the beginning, it was hard. As you know, every every start, is it's hard. You know, every beginning is hard. So I kind of started this at, while I was still working at Crown. Mm-hmm. I even did a couple drafting projects for them in AutoCAD on the side because we were really, really busy. And I offered that, hey, I can go, you know, help you on the side when I'm home. And they liked the idea. So we kind of did two projects, I think, for them. And then I felt how that all works, you know. And then I started finding other companies. Um, and the main thing I was able to get companies is before because I was offering microvellum service. So a lot of those companies, you can find, I, I learned that later on, that there's a lot of companies out there who are doing outsourcing and drawings and stuff, but they mainly offer only out of it. So me having that microvellum, you know, offering the microvellum, you know, they they were they were willing to try me out. Or, okay, let's try. 
So yeah, I failed a couple of times. I, you know, <laughs> I had some project that I barely made any money in the beginning, but I had to go through all that to be where I'm at now, where I'm actually working for a really good company that you, you worked in the past with and, you know, learning a lot with them and, you know, just growing with them together. I mean, they need help. Mm -hmm. They have a lot of jobs. They need help with drafting engineering. So, and they know I do, you know, try to do the best work I can. So why not have me help them? You know, they're already, so it's a good, good. It's a win-win yeah, for every yeah. side, you know, it's a win for me, win for them. So we'll be back after a quick break. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step -step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step -step guide to starting your podcast today. What do you find um, is your... Uh, you know, you, you you work with, you know, multiple companies at this point and kind of work through, I assume, some that didn't work out so well and ones that are really working out well right now. Um, are there anything that you've learned about how either from the company side, what makes it successful for them or on your side, what, you, what you've learned to to be more successful in, in helping outsourcing? Yes, and I, I'm pretty sure you'll, you'll say the same. It's communication. It's literally everything is in communication. I mean, I, I can't read minds. So if you don't tell me everything was going on a project and if you don't keep me updated, if something changes, I didn't know that. So you, you have to keep me updated and keep me in the loop so that I know everything was going in because there's it happened like multiple times where they have one set of drawings, they send me the drawings and then in meantime, you know, designer or architect change a couple of things. And if you don't send me those updates, I'm going to draw what first drawings you sent me off, off of them. So, I mean, you can't expect the good drawings if we don't communicate and you can, don't keep me updated. So the best companies that work for me, it's those companies that keep me in the loop, mm -hmm. that include me in a handbox meetings, because those are really helpful where you have a group of people where they have estimator, PM, you know, engineering or drafting manager and even one drafter with, on that meeting and we go through whole project and that, you know, e even that time I realized, oh God, I, I even missed this. You know, I didn't even saw that I need to draw this or I, I, I thought I, I, I need to draw this, but I thought in a whole different way of drafting. And then we have that meeting and kind of narrow everything down, how everything should be drafted and what should be included on those drawings. So if it's communication poor, then relationship ends up being really poor because I, you know, I can't provide you with the best service there because you're not keeping me again, updated and up, up to the speed, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think and what's I think, ironic or you know, funny about that is, is that's really the really same the thing, thing that, that makes make, an internal engineer successful as well. Um, you know, and I think a lot of times from, you know, our experience that, uh, the companies who struggle with this are just the companies who struggle period with yeah. it, with, you know, process and systems. And so, um, and unfortunately, unfortunately. there's often, um, uh, 
the companies who need the most help, you know, and are kind of reaching out and saying, hey, I need these shop drawings. You know, can you help me with this submittal? I need it next week. Um, or they have, like, they need the most help. They're the ones stealing the louse, are the ones who are the least organized, have the least system, the worst communication. Um, and the ones who don't need you as much are probably the ones who are doing the best. So there is kind of a middle ground of companies who have process, have some semblance of organization, but also are looking for that extra capacity. Um, do you find that, um, you know, the learning curve? So obviously you have hands-on experience because another thing a lot of companies struggle with the idea of like an, an external engineer or drafter is, well, you don't know how we do things. You don't know how we build things or you don't, you know, you can't just go talk to the shop floor. Um, how do you overcome those types of ideas and kind of mentalities? So yes, that happens a lot. And yes, every company has his own, their own standard, their own way of doing things. And, uh, so I always try to follow much as I can. I ask them to send me as much as examples as they can, even the exports for microvelope. So I can actually go myself into the previous project that they already done, see which products they use, how they use them. So that's what I try to do. And, uh, most of the companies that I work for so far, uh, were okay with that and they will give me all those information. So I was able to pick up their standards really fast mm -hmm. and quick. And even, even during the drafting, if I, if I'm not sure how I should draft something, I always go back to those examples and see if there is something similar that they've done in those examples, you know, that I can incorporate in these drawings. So, yeah, but, um, again, it's something, you know, communication. And again, it's something that people, some companies have really good written, you know, in PDF, they're going to send me a PDF of how they like things done in even in microvolume, you know, how they want their rooms to be made, mm -hmm. how they want their projects to be named and stuff like that. So the, I always encourage people to have that because it makes so much easier, not, not just for myself. I think even for people, when you're bringing them on board, that that's going to help you in the future, you know, to give all that instructions to them and they can read through and make sure they, they you know, jump into your standards and pick them up easily as possible. Right, right. So... Yeah, no, that's, I mean, I think it's the same on that. <clears throat> the stuff that you need to be able to uh, onboard uh, an external drafter is really the same stuff that you need to onboard somebody internally and train them. Exactly. Um, and unfortunately, too many too companies many. just don't do any of that. And they say, okay, well, we've hired a new engineer. Here's your desk. Ask questions and figure it out. Um, and the difference between that and somebody like you or I, that's outside that building is we don't have access to the same ability to just walk around the building and ask people questions or access their network and find resources. Right. Um, and so, and that's still not an efficient way to learn and, and it leads to variation in how those people do things. Um, and it's very subjective. You know, your engineers in general in those types of environments are themselves frustrated and they want somebody just to say, hey, we do it this way or we do it this way or we do it these three ways and here's how you know when. Um, and in the void of that, they're making it up as they go. And so that's where you also end up in companies that have multiple engineers. They don't like working behind each other because they do things differently. Um, and it's because nobody in the company has taken the leadership role and said, Hey, 
we're going to standardize a process and we're going to say, here's how we collectively do X, Y, or Z. And you would never do that out in production. You know, you would never say, well, if you're operating the saw today, you're free to decide how you do it. And when tomorrow, if it's somebody else, he's free to decide how he wants, you know, and what's crazy is that like literally engineers are doing that and saying, well, I, I changed our cabinet construction to this because I think it's better for this reason. Um, but no, you wouldn't let anybody else in, outside in your manufacturing do that. So, I mean, I think the people are resistant to outsourcing engineering or working with an external partner um, because it, it understandably is scary and, and is uncharted territory. Um, but that's why it's so important to work with somebody like you um, who can walk you through that process. And that's what you really specialize in. And in, in that, you can actually help them improve their processes outside of you. I mean, that's that's why I try. I always say, uh, if you don't have those standards in a, in, a, in a drafting or engineering, that even complicates stuff in a shop. Mm-hmm. I mean, the things will go smoothly and much faster in the shop if you have everything standardized. I mean, the much as you can. Of course, if, if you're high-end residential company, mm-hmm. every piece is one of its kind, you know, it's, but there's a year's cargo cabinet you keep doing over and over and over in every, that kitchen again. Mm-hmm. So why not standardize that cabinet that in every kitchen is the same, you know? Yep. So it's going to speed up everything. So yeah. Well, and even you know, within that, there's things that you can standardize and you don't even realize that you probably have. So I, almost every company that I've been to and Every email where company starts out, well, we're very custom. We're very custom. Everything, we're all custom, right? But you think that you're more custom than the next guy. But if you go out and start talking to your production staff, they have created standards, with, with even though if they don't realize it. So, for example, if you were to say, well, we're a custom. Okay, I'm going to just engineer this desk the way I think, and it's totally custom. And you send it out. That bench builder is going to say, no, 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 no. I want I want double bottom plates and yeah. I want, I want four studs at a field joint and I need, you know, my access panel to look like this. They've created standards, but nobody's documented it. Um, and even though it's custom, it's a totally unique piece. It could be done any one of which ways they've figured out things that say, well, I know I want to cut these parts on this machine. So that means okay. I want to do this detail. Um, I know that when it gets to the field, I'm going to want to be able to ins- assemble field joints with um, these type of bolts, or I want my access panel for this. And so there are elements of even highly custom things that can be standardized. I mean, for example, in veneer, uh, even though every elevation is totally different, if you do blueprint matching, you probably have a standard that says, well, if I'm going to have a balanced center match cabinet door, or does that mean that we always oversize one inch, the rough panel? Right. Yeah, it, it's not three quarter, it's not an inch and a half, it's exactly. one inch, right? And yeah. every shop has those types of standards. And those are the things that if you document them, you standardize them, you communicate them so everybody knows because in engineering, we're gonna need to know that. And if I do, I can make a panel drawing for you that's not, not just what the finished product needs to be, but what you need to make in the veneer either. to get that. Yeah. So you don't have to think those pro- this process too. So yeah, I mean, it's again, the key is communication, you know. There's not a lot of companies who have, um, for example, at the Crown where I worked, uh, when we send the project to the shop floor, uh, you will have a feedback. So when the, when that job 
or work order went to the shop, there's a notes on your, on your work order on the back, the builder or supervisor or manager, whoever wrote the issues they had and the things that you should be aware of in the future. So that was really helpful mm -hmm. because every time I had that feedback, I was like, oh, so next time, like you said, I need to pay attention to stud spacing. They didn't like whatever, 36, they wanted 16 or whatever. I'm just making it up now, yeah. <laughs> but those type of things, you know, so they'll put yeah. those notes and first it goes to my manager, which is engineering manager. And so he'll read through those and then he'll give them to me and then mm -hmm. I'll go through. Okay. Okay. Noted. Thank you. And I'll even save that paper. And next time when I have a project similar to that, I'll, you know, read them through again to make sure that I fix them. So again, communication, feedback from the shop, people don't communicate mm -hmm. too well. They just, you know, it is what it is. I'm just keep doing it. And I think and that's that, the biggest issue. That is a perfect example. <laughs> I love that because I don't know, think enough companies do that. But especially if you're working with, and this is true of anything, not just drafting or engineering outsourcing, but if you subcontract install or if you subcontract yep. your stone, for example, anything um, for that supplier, that vendor to get better and be able to do better for you, you need to give them feedback. And one of the biggest things that, reasons why this industry um there's tons of shops that have tried outsourcing drawings one time they got an email that somebody said hey we can do your shop drawings and we're gonna you know we've got all it's all this experience and they say okay we'll give them a try and it goes terrible yeah. and they just never do it again um one you know those types of companies are you know probably just bad but if you try you they still they could only get better if you give them feedback so yeah. if you know, we're working with you and we're doing um, a first job, that first job is not going to be the best we can do for you. Um, and the only way we can get better is to get that feedback is to say, okay, here's what we did on this job. And here's the things that went wrong. Okay, great. We will correct those. And we will make sure that we learn that uh, for the next time the next and part. actually start to create, you know, a profile of you as a client. Hey, here's how your standards are, here's the things that we need to look out for. Here's how you like X, Y, and Z. Um, and every job that grows and you learn, it's just like working internally as an engineer. You just mentioned like you were learning with each work order release, how that shop at Crown liked things and how to do those types of things. As a vendor, it's the same way. Um, it, it you need to get way. that feedback. Yeah, it, 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 no, I, I, and that's what I do. So again, back to the, you know, outsourcing thing. So first I contact the company, they contact me. So we agree that we're going to do the first project. I always tell them, Hey, please be aware. The first project may, might not be the perfect. I might miss a couple standards, thing, standard things that you didn't like or something, but please free, you know, mark through it. Let me know, put the note. So the next one I can, you know, do better. And mm -hmm. then even when I send them the first project that even when it goes to the shop and everything, I'll wait a month or two, or maybe sometimes even more, a couple months. And send an email back again, asking, even if we continue working on other projects, I'll send an email specifically to that first or second project or whichever project I've done in the past, asking, Hey, how did it go through? Was it that, was there any issues that I need to be aware of? You know, was there anything that you should let me know that I, you know, I can keep, because if you don't tell me, I don't know, I'll just keep doing what I'm doing because I think you're happy with it. I'm doing the right thing. So you have to tell me even. If it's bad or wrong, or even if I'm doing a good job, please share that with me, you know, so I'm aware of it because it's going to make our, you know, 
our thing much easier, much more successful, you know, successful, sorry on my English. So it, it's simple as that. Again, we just keep coming back. It's communication and feedback. Yeah. And I think it's really, really important thing that people should encourage more to, to you know, to give those back people. Do you find that there's, um, <clears throat> you know, it, on on kind of the idea of client standards and, and, and learning curve, do you find that getting their library uh, helps to, to minimize, minimize mistakes of things so that you wouldn't, you wouldn't catch otherwise, that things are built into the library as opposed to if you were just drawing from scratch in AutoCAD? So yes and no. So I'll say yes because there are companies who put a lot of effort in building those libraries and uh, mm -hmm. they're using the microvellum almost to full potential. But there's also a ton of companies who use the microvellum basic, you know, how it comes from the, they buy it, they get the license, they install it, and that's what they've been using for the past five, 10 years. Right. So those type of companies, again, have to do a lot of AutoCAD additional drawings and draftings and, you know, changes and stuff. So that's why I said yes and no. Those companies that do a lot of, um, you know, library development in microelm and stuff like that, everything I think is easier because everything is standardized. Even, even for me and as an outsource, I'm already set up to succeed, you know, because I have their library, which is always fully, you know, developed and have their old standards and stuff like that. So I don't have to think about it. Mm -hmm. I just go, you know, hit to export those drawings that I've done. I mean, that it's easy. I love right. that when the companies are organized like that. Yep. Awesome. Um, and that was, that was my goal. You know, like you mentioned that USA Millwork was to develop our library, to have as much of our standards built in there as possible so that even our entry level drafters or, um, you know, people that didn't have to know every little thing about how we construct every product. So, and the more we could build that in there, um, the more it kind of minimized those mistakes down the, the down yeah. the way. And it served as a path for them to learn because as they're putting in products and they're saying, oh, this is how our dowel pattern is. This is how our nailer sizes are. And they're learning that by doing the work that is already built in there. No, I, I, I agree hundred percent on that one. Um, so what do you see, you know, uh, going from, um, company to company and now outside of that, you're working with multiple companies. What have you learned about the industry that maybe surprised you the most? We'll be back after a quick break. Are you interested in small businesses? My name is David C. Barnett, and I've been podcasting and producing YouTube videos about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses for almost 10 years. I'm a former business broker and have owned and operated several businesses, and I've been advising business owners since the 1990s. Each week, I create a new podcast, which answers one of your questions, and I've always got amazing, exciting guests. You can find me on YouTube by going to smallbusinessanddealmakingpodcast.com or just search David Barnett's Small Business in any podcasting app to find me. I look forward to seeing you around. So, I mean, I might sound more of it, but the most that I, I was kind of disappointed because there are so many companies out there that I thought that they're much more organized and much more well, you know, oil machine. And then I start working with them and 
they don't have actually the structure on the system in the place yet. I mean, I love when I see that they're trying, they, they're really fighting to get that in the place. So that's a good thing, but there are companies out there that they're just going to blame you, no matter whatever you do, they don't care. They think they do, they know, you know, the best thing they, they're doing out there, but I think they might be wrong. And I, I hope someone is going to open their eyes one day and they're going to see that, that they can improve, they can organize better and they can, you know, set up everyone for to succeed, even their internal employees, everyone, you know? So that's, that's the, I think the biggest one that I've seen. And I was yeah, kind of yeah. disappointed into that, to be honest, a little bit, not, not much. I mean, I try to help much as I can. And yeah, you know, sometimes when I build a relationship, I'll give my two cents, try to, you know, give my two cents. Hey, I work with a couple of companies around. This is how they do things. Maybe you want to try that way. It might help you in the future. You know, I'm not pushing that, but I'm just giving them a kind of idea what they can do maybe a little bit better. Mm-hmm. So some of them accept that some of them not, you know, just ignore. I mean, but it is, again, I I hate to say it, but it is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's something that I've found, especially now, you know, over the last year and a half working outside of a single company and with consulting with many companies is one, the industry in many ways, it's a small world. A lot of people, you know, almost everybody knows each other, but it is much, much bigger. There's far more companies just in the U.S. speaking than people realize. And then I ever realized, um, but two, you know, but from that also, it's much more mm-hmm. kind of representative of just the world in general or the society in general in that anybody can start a woodworking shop in reality. Yes. Um, and from that, there really, really ends up being a small percentage that are very well run, very ethically run. Um, and there is always going to be a certain percentage of, of people that just either don't know how to run the business or don't really care to do it efficiently or do it very well. So it is very important, you know, like reputation is almost everything in this industry and really as it is in any business, um, and continually learning. But the other thing I've noticed is that there's a lot of very good business owners and very good companies that the ones who are very well run generally see themselves worse than they really are. And so what I mean by that is a lot of times I'll go on, on site with a client or an owner and they'll be say, how bad are we? You know, you, you've seen a lot of other companies, how, how really bad. And I'm like, you guys are actually really well run compared to the general public. And they're self-conscious because they're constantly thinking they about really all the things that are wrong. They're thinking, oh man, I want to improve this. Oh man, I want to improve that. And so, you know, and that's just people in general, the people that are usually the most self-aware are actually not as bad as they perceive themselves. And same with companies, because they don't get, most business owners are just focused on their business and they don't get to see what everybody else is. And so while there are a ton of companies that are very inefficiently run, and there's a lot of low hanging fruit that they could just improve on, there are a, a certain subset that when they are really well run, they don't even realize how good they are. Yes. And, and like you said, even with those that, that they're not very well run, it, it's really, there comes an ego, you know, people mm-hmm. are thinking they're doing the, you know, are we doing the best custom cabinets? And that's, and I know we talked about with someone about that specific topic on your, on your podcast yeah, okay. in the previous podcasts. And it, it, it was, that's, that, that's it actually, it's what it is. 
ego. Mm-hmm. You know, people get into that and they think they're doing the best thing and they just think they don't need to improve. Yeah. I mean, and, and they should. I mean, I constantly keep improving and I keep looking what I can improve, what I can do better and constantly all the time. Yeah. No, there, I've said it a lot of times on this podcast and elsewhere. There is a lot of ego in this industry and a lot of it is, um, and I, I offend people every time I say this, but it, it, it is, um, you know, the idea of like, well, even what I said earlier, like everybody thinks, oh, well, the, what we do is too custom for improvement. Yeah. And so it's, well, no, we can't do it that way. Or we can't have a process. There's no way we can standardize this because we're just too unique. We're too special. And it's, it's, it's not, there's always some opportunity to improve. Um, and, and with that also, they refuse outside help and they refuse to look outside of this industry and be innovative. Um, and the people who are doing that, and this is just true of any industry, you know, when you look outside of your bubble, there's opportunity to look and learn and say, oh, I think I can adapt that to what I'm doing. Oh, I think that, well, what they're doing with technology is amazing. What, what if we learn something from that? Um, and you have to get over your ego to be able to learn and to be able to see opportunity. Um, and I mean, even in like, I'll come up with what I think is an amazing idea or an amazing product or amazing something. And I'll show it to my wife and like, man, this is so amazing. This is so great. And she'll right away find the flaw in it, right? Because she's not, she's not blinded by the things that I'm blinded by. And I'm thinking, wow, I just came up with this. This is so cool. This is so great. I'm not seeing all the problems with it. And all it takes is that outside perspective that has no ego tied to it of like, oh, well, actually, what if this, I did this and it all falls apart. Um, And it's the same thing with business and and in millwork. It's having that outside perspective that is not blinded by hey, this is my baby. This is my thing that I created and there's nothing wrong with it um, is very valuable and, and to be open to that. Because I would think you get, you, you overthink things sometimes because you're mm-hmm. so much into it and you start overthinking things. Mm-hmm. And then I, I always like to ask because in the previous shops, especially in the first shop I worked for, we had a couple of young, young guys, I mean, same age as I am, I can't say young, um, that are coming not from this industry. They were doing totally something else. They were brought in, they started the same as I did, you know, as a helper, and then they grow a bit. And one of them was, uh, she was running a CNC. But I would often go to him because he was a smart guy. And I would often go to him and the issues or things that I have that bother me, you know, I'll talk to him about it, you know, the product, the, whatever it is. And then tell him the idea I had how to resolve that. And he'll just say, Hey, why don't you do this? I'll be like, wow. You know, you just, it's so much simpler. It's so much easier because I start oh. overcomplicating things, you know, yeah. and he just gave me that simple idea, simple solution. I was like, thank you. That's it. That's what we good going to do. You know, it, it's, so you gotta have that, you know, pers- at least hear the perspective from, you know, people from you know, other companies or maybe people who are doing something else, you know, it doesn't have to be necessarily woodworking industry, but, you know, just ask, say, hey, what do you think about this, what I'm doing here? You know, is there anything you would change or improve or, you know? Well, and that's a good point because I think a a lot of why our millwork industry is that way so much is because we're very secretive. Yeah. And a lot of it is kind of like being... worried about competition, you know, and that comes a lot of from the owners down. And so if you think about just culture and companies, um, 
there's an understandable reason to be secretive. Like, oh, I don't want them to steal the way we do things. But at the end of the day, we're all doing things very much the same. And so um, like AWI Best Practice Groups is a great example. And there's lots of other you know networking events, but getting outside of your own building, your own company, your own way of doing things, uh, there's a lot to be gained and learned by interacting and sharing, hey, this is how we do things. Oh, well, that's a great idea. Um, and one of the best examples of this I found is when in a company, you hire somebody new that comes from another company. Their questions they ask in onboarding are some of the best feedback you can get about what's wrong with your company. So when they say, oh, why do you guys do things this way? That This doesn't make sense to me. Um, well, it's because the way we've always done it, or maybe there is a good reason, but it, that is a really good time to look from an outsider's perspective, from a new thing when they're, the questions they're asking are generally the things that are, aren't obvious, aren't intuitive, you don't have a process for, or the information is available. And so when they're having to ask a peer, hey, where do I find this information? Hey, how do I know this answer? That's stuff that isn't documented or isn't, you know, clear. Um, and especially if it's somebody that comes from industry and they've done the job at another company and they're coming to do it yours and, and they're having to ask these questions, that should be a clue that maybe the way we're doing things aren't intuitive or aren't logical or aren't clearly documented. Oh, again, I agree hundred percent on that. And, and then if you open-minded and it, I say open-minded, so if you want to listen to those, then you can improve. Mm-hmm. But there's companies, unfortunately, where, you know, people like that will get hired, they'll ask all those questions and they'll get just shut down and they'll, hey, this is the way we do it and just keep doing it that way. And unfortunately, those company needs still exist. Yep. So, I mean, the, the best way I learned the most in this industry is when I was in college and we had this, that through almost every class, we had to go to a different company in Serbia and see their processes or something. So if it's for, for example, for particle board class that I have, we'll go to Kronospan company in Serbia and we'll see how they make that particle board. So we'll see how they mix the glue. We'll see how they make those particles and how they dry them out. So that's the best way to learn things. You know, you, you, you listen to all these on classes. Now you come to see it in the practice. And that's the best way how I, you know, picked up seeing for all these different companies, how they do different things on a different way. I learned so much just going into those companies because I was observing around, you know, asking questions, they, Hey, why you do this joint this way? And then they'll explain me, tell me, oh, wow. So now it makes sense, you know? So yeah. yeah, it's all again, different perspectives, you know, everyone does things differently, but again, the core, it's kind of the same. We're still been building a box, a cabinet. Yes, there's a 15 or who knows how many other ways that you can build that box, but to steal a box. So we all, I always come to that. Right. Right. Well, there's, uh, I, I kind of spent a little bit more time maybe than I usually do on this, but there's two questions I always ask every guest. Um, and I'm really interested in what you, what your perspective is on this. You know, the first is, uh, what do you see changing in this industry over the next five to 10 years? Okay. So, um, so changing, I mean, yes, the technology will change. Uh, we'll probably, there's something new that's going to come out because that's changing at so fast pace right now, because everything is going so, you know, improving so fast. But we, I think as an industry, I always kind of struggle a little bit with, uh, 
implementing those technologies into shops. So there's a still ton of shops out there that don't even have a CNC yet, or don't even have a, some software as a microvellum or cabinet vision or something like that. So I think what's going to be the biggest change in the next five to 10 years is that people will start to implement more, those more and more and more and more. Because if you don't have a CNC in the future and, and the software that can kind of support the CNC, I don't think so that you can be competitive in the pricing and, uh, you know, with delivery dates and stuff like that, because that's, that's going to really speed up your processes and make things all different, you know? So that's one thing. Also another thing being in a, uh, in that high end residential company that I work for, I think I, I see a lot of, uh, and you will maybe have to correct me on this word. Is it sustainability that you say it? Mm -hmm. Sustainability, you know, yeah. Yeah, the people trying to use more, if I can say, healthier MDFs, you know, not using, okay. you know, farm glues and stuff like that. Or if you have to glue veneer on the MDF, you have to use eco-friendly glue mm. and eco-friendly finishes. So I can see more and more of that coming, especially in that high-end residential industry, I would say. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's interesting because I don't think anybody's ever really brought that up, but I do see that material sciences and the sustainability also even just in the way they're manufactured. Sure. I was actually at a, a shop yesterday and touring their sure. finishing department sure. and they're all uh, like water-based. Um, and so even in the finishing now, you know, because still today, largely, there's a lot of finishing departments that have spray booths and there's a lot of solvents and things that are terrible for your for your lungs and for your breathing and so a lot of that is changing now to where um even the chemicals and the processes we use are a lot healthier and less uh adverse and i, mean, I remember harm. one of the yeah less harmful to us as, as yep. humans and i think it's where we're becoming more aware of those things like i mean in general woodworking like particulate that you breathe and get in your lungs like that doesn't ever come out. And there's a lot of things we've learned and are still learning um, just about using respirators and using masks and how we, the manufacturing process to be healthier for us as, as humans. So I, I, I hope that that's true. I hope that continues to improve because I can't tell you how many older woodworkers I know that just die from lung cancer or just, you know, uh, of, of different health problems related to working in this industry. Yeah, I mean, I've seen that change a bit in the pa in the past couple of years, but I think that's going to be more and more in the future that people are going to yep. be tend more to use, you know, like you said, water based finishes and stuff, stuff like that. Awesome. So on the flip Thumbs side up. of that, what uh, what do you see staying the same over the next five to ten years? So staying the same, and probably some of already said that same as for technology. That I would say that need for a good well-educated people. I mean, mm -hmm. yes, you'll have CNC, you'll have a software, but you always need a good operator to run that software, to run that CNC and, uh, you know, stuff like that. So right. I, I, I don't see that changing in the near future at all. So there, there always going to be a need for good, well-knowledge people in this industry. And yeah, that's not going in the way. Yeah. yeah, no, I agree. And I think that's it, something that people are it, apprehensive as technology advances and automated machinery advances, they think, oh, we're going to lose people and jobs. But to support that, you need more and more of different types of roles to support all that. Yeah. What, um, 
what advice or tips would you have for people in this industry or looking to get into specifically millwork engineering, you know, like you or I have, how to, how to excel, how to learn, how to get opportunities um, in this industry? So I would say uh, eager to learn for sure. And another thing I would say, and that, that this was the biggest for me, for I'm saying this from my own experience, it's not being afraid to ask the question. Because even during my college, what I was studying, um, on the beginning, like first or second year, I was really shy back in high school and, you know, in middle school. So there comes first year and one of the professors is explaining something and I couldn't understand. And then I kind of raised the hand and I was like, Hey, professor, am I might going to ask a stupid question. And, and he's like, stop, 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 stop. He's like, there's no such a stupid question. So if there's just a stupid answer, he kind of, you know, everyone started laughing, but then that stuck into my head because every time I struggle with something, I, I even when I started all this, I even reach out to you and I didn't know you back there. You know, we didn't meet in a person before that. And I reach out to you when I had issues with something was in microvellum. I was like, Hey, Jacob, he's the guy who's going to know this for sure. He, you know, was doing similar thing I'm doing. So he knows the answer. So I reached out to you. I wrote this message. I said what issue I had and you answered me in a matter of hours and that your answer helped me a lot. I mean, saved me a ton of time. So I just, I would just encourage people to keep asking those questions and be more involved in everything, you know, be more involved in knowledge network that Microvellum has. I know they, they're going to improve that soon. Um, so I, I hope they're going to make it more user-friendly so that we all can kind of communicate there. And uh, reach out to people, even on LinkedIn or whatever. I mean, whoever, I mean, there's so many people you, that know Microvellum really, really well, don't be afraid to ask that question, you know, Hey, Jacob, or Hey, Ratko, this is the issue I have. Can you please help me? And if I don't have the answer, I might know someone who knows. So I might reach out to someone regards that question and ask, Hey, can you help me resolve this? And then he's going to help me and I'll just, you know, give you the answer. So yeah, just don't be afraid to ask the question. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's good advice. Cause I think, and I think, you know, reaching out to people and asking, cause, um, the answer is no, unless you ask. And so, um, I think that that's really great and, advice. And another thing, maybe I would, I would add, uh, be part of those question and a, uh, you know, question and answers on microvellum, because even I, I think I know a decent, you know, microvellum, but I'll go on those and just listen what people, you know, what people ask, you know, questions asked and those answers from the people, you know, who developed the microvellum and stuff like that. And they'll maybe click something or do something that I was doing much slower. You know, I'll, I'll have to make five clicks to get to that point. And he just, there's one click and there's one shortcut that he clicked and did that. I was like, oh, wow. Okay. I'm using that from now on. So, you know, just be, be present, you know, that yeah, that's all yeah. I think is going to help everyone. I mean. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I remember early on when I was trying to learn as much about microvolume engineering as possible, I would go on the, the forums every day and see what questions other people were asking. And then I would try to solve it on my own to, you know, and it was something that I never, might not ever needed to do, but through solving that, I was learning new things that then, like you said, I could say, oh, this opens up a new idea for something I do need. I, I, I keep doing that and I'm, I'm using microvolume for, I would say like four or five years now. And I keep doing that even today. And there's, yeah. again, so many things new that I learned, you know, even today. And 
Yeah, and they'll be afraid. I know microalarm sounds uh, or it, it did look to me, you know, kind of intriguing in the beginning when I was starting all, all those formulas and stuff. And it's actually not that complicated. I don't have any background with formulas. I mean, I did go to high school for IT, but I didn't learn that type of formulas, you know. I was more learning like zeros and ones and what they do. So, yeah, I was kind of scared. Oh my God, I'm never going to learn this. I'm never going to get the formula ifs and ors and ands and what they do. So, no, just don't be scared. Just start small. You know, start mm -hmm. those with simple formulas. Start, tag them and, you know, kind of take them apart and see what all those things they're doing to. And then you're going to learn. The more you yeah. do it, of course, the more you're going to learn. And then it becomes really easy, I would say. Not easy, but easier. Awesome. Well, I think that's great advice. I really appreciate you, Rekko, taking time out to uh, to join me and ha have this conversation. Um, if people want to reach out and connect with you and you know find out more about what you do or how they might get you to help them, how can they do that? I'll definitely say LinkedIn. LinkedIn? Yeah, I'm, I'm on it every day. I don't have any other social media. I'm mostly on LinkedIn, so that's my you know, replacement for social media. So I'm there. I'm trying to be very active. So yeah, that will be the best way to reach me out. Awesome. We'll link that in the show notes and uh, look forward to uh, hopefully having you on again in the future. I'm looking forward to it too. And thank you for having me yeah. here. It was my pleasure. Awesome. Thanks, Radko. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Do you want to stay up to date about industry insights, new content, and our community of mill workers? Go to DuckworksMW.com to sign up for our newsletter. I'll see you in the next episode of Verify in Field.